You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to the Women in Archaeology Podcast, a podcast about, by, and for women in the field. On this episode, we are going to be discussing pseudo-archaeology. I'm Emily Long, and I'm here with Kirsten Lopez, Sarah Head, and our newest guest, Steph Holmhofer. Ladies, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, good to be here. Thanks Thanks for for having me. So before we get started, um, Steph, since you're new, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, about your work? Sure. I am a bioarchaeologist. I live in Ottawa right now, and I'm working right now within an engineering firm, the archaeology department within an engineering firm. Um, And I'm also part of a big research project in BC, so it's kind of a lot of back and forth across the country. Uh, And I also have a website called Bones, Stones, and Books. (laughs) It's a fun website. Everybody should check it out. Hey, I've actually read your stuff. It's pretty good. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) And for our listeners, um, the link to her website will be um, under links, under the podcast links and stuff. So check it out. Well, like I said, we're going to be doing pseudo-archaeology today. We're talking all about the ins and outs of it. So who would like to tackle what exactly is pseudo-archaeology? Yeah, Sarah. Pseudo-archaeology is, uh, I'm sure there's somewhere there's a really awesome professional definition of pseudo-archaeology, but effectively pseudo-archaeology is the use of archaeological sounding ideas and concepts to promote nonsensical or poorly researched ideas. Um... And the reason I say that is because I like to use the term Mm -hmm. cult archaeology because it's very much the groups that tend to use or get accused of being pseudo-archaeological. The reason that happens is because they're just kind of pantomiming the archaeological process. They don't completely understand the research process, the writing process, peer review, presentation, vetting, and that, or even the concept of what is evidence and what isn't evidence. Um, Sometimes they don't know the difference between a fact and an opinion. But they've seen archaeology on TV. And so they know if they copy that archaeology that they Mm. saw on TV that they are somehow doing archaeology. And that, kind of in a nutshell, is what pseudo-archaeology is. It's, It's the pantomiming of the field without understanding what you're pantomiming. So, Sarah, that's an excellent definition um, and description. I know for me, whenever I think about the (laughs) pseudo-archaeology, the the first thing that really pops into my head is the um, history aliens guy on the History Channel, Uh, and his hair's uh all, like, poofed out, and he's like, aliens! Uh Oh, um, Yeah, and his hair gets poofier and poofier each season. Exactly, it just gets bigger yeah. and bigger the crazier yeah. it is. And so to me, that's pseudo-archaeology, where it's like, it was aliens. And then there's like this wonderful spoof that um, South Park did, where they were mimicking oh, yeah. that, and it was about Thanksgiving. And the, oh, yeah. the boys kept being like, there were ghosts, and then there were aliens. And then the historians would be like, well, according to these boys, famous historian Stan Marsh said... <laughs> Explains seems just builds well, and builds up to each other, and so it's just it's it's interesting. But yeah, go ahead. Well, but that's exactly how it is, though. I mean that. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, of course, I love South Park because I have no taste. But um, <laughs> that's exactly how that kind of stuff goes. <laughs> if you 
<laughs> if you look at the leading voices in in the pseudo-archaeology different groups, because, I mean, I mean, we're using one term to describe a huge kind of network of people who, some of them talk to each other, some of them don't, and uh-huh. that that's, none of them are really qualified to be talking about the things they're, quali- they're, they're talking about, and, but that's how it happens. There's this massive appeal to authority in pseudo-archaeological circles where they they'll get one person who has a degree in something like mm-hmm. uh, like a degree in like engineering mm-hmm. and some and I'm not smashing engineers I'm really not I'm just I'm trying to like come up with these things but they'll have a dude that's got a, a degree in uh, that and then they'll ask him questions about archaeology uh-huh. And instead of saying something to the effect of, well, I'm an engineer, this person then goes on to pontificate about all the things that he thinks he knows about archaeology because he watched a program once on YouTube and that taught him everything he needed to know. And I, I know I'm... I, I know I'm being mocking of that, but it's... <laughs> sometimes it really is really that ridiculous. Um, over the years, I've talked to lots of people who try to impress upon me how unqualified I am to be talking about debunking and archaeology and and the things that I talk about on my blog but yet somehow these people who are either not even uh, like they've graduated from high school they might have some college or they're they've got a degree in something completely out there and I'm just like mm-hmm I don't if you're gonna sit here and tell me how I am not qualified to speak about these things you're going to have to do a lot more to convince me why you're qualified to speak about these things. And it usually comes down to something like, you're just close-minded. Yeah. <laughs> but you do yeah. get people sometimes who will just slap the letters doctor in front of their name and start talking as if they are some kind of degree-laden person, and they're not. Mm-hmm. And, and to go back to the South Park episode, the whole Dr. Stan Marsh. I mean, he's like a, what, nine-year-old kid, and he's suddenly a professor in history. Exactly. <laughs> the ridiculousness of that is very much what occurs in some of the pseudo-archaeological communities. It's true. <laughs> Stephanie, can you tell us... Or I'm sorry, Steph, can you tell us about the uh, the Contiki expedition that you were researching on there? Uh, yeah, so Contiki was an expedition in the late 40s by Thor Heyerdahl. I think I pronounced that okay. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a Norwegian explorer and writer who basically had this idea that a group of people from South America had colonized the Polynesian islands, and they had made their way to the Polynesian islands building uh, a raft with the available materials they had and essentially just drifting their way across um, the Pacific to the Polynesian islands. And so he built a replica um, raft and had a crew of, I think, six other men. uh, And they just drifted their way to Polynesia and they made it, which I think was mostly just due to luck. And that just (laughs) led him down this crazy road of saying, see, the South Americans uh, colonized Polynesia. And he said a lot of really other insane things, but that's essentially the gist of it. He's received a lot of criticism for... um he does have pseudo. Uh, he does have some very controversial views. Yeah, um, he's received a lot of criticism for them, and I know that the um, 
the, the Kantiki expedition, I know is one of them. Mm-hmm. Because there was a lot of tweaking that had to be done mm-hmm. to the boat alone yeah. to get it across. So it would sink. <laughs> right, but that's the thing. Like, if you don't look close enough at the the expedition, you'll th- you you will think that he was taking a traditionally built boat, yeah, and successfully drifted across the ocean to get to uh, the islands. But that's not true. Uh, the boat had to be modified yeah. due to... I think well, the first problem they ran into was they didn't have the right materials, which is mm-hmm. allowable. Mm-hmm. But then there were other things that had to be tweaked to make the boat seaworthy so it wouldn't sink. And even then, they had a myriad of problems getting it across. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. He also had a spotter boat with them the whole time. And I believe that there's one, one point in the expedition where people had to be removed from the boat uh, from the, the traditional boat onto the spotter boat uh, for safety reasons, which means it's not successful. If you have to rescue people with exactly. yeah. your expedition, that's that's when you're trying to prove you don't need that to get across the ocean. I'm sorry, that's that's yeah unsuccessful. Um, yeah, the absolutely. Other, my other huge problem with that, um, and it's it's the problem I have with a lot of these weird. Like we just got done talking about the Solutrean hypothesis um, on oh, the Earth yeah. Fantasy show, and then. I have the same problem. Another great podcast. Everybody should check out. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's a labor of love. <laughs> no. Just go right um, now. Not right stop now. Stop listening. No, go listen no. to my show. Later. Not, not yet. Not yet. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but my other major problem is this, uh, the number of people that could have gone over on that boat. Like you said, he had six people on that boat with him. I think so, yeah. Um, let's say, for the sake of argument, those six people made it to the island safely. How are six mm-hmm. people going to populate a chain of islands? Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Lots Slowly? Bunny six. <laughs> how, okay, how are six people going to populate an island and not have a, a, like, a colony of mad people? Because they're all so incredibly yeah. inbred. Um, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> So would it then be more likely, like, the boats we see in the movie Moana, you know, as opposed to if, if you see the book Contiki, it literally, it looks like a flat raft with a sail yeah. um, kind of thing you would make with, like, Lincoln Logs as a little kid. Um, but Well, here's where the issue ahead, uh, that we, the hot button issue with a lot of these studio, pseudo-archaeological theories, they have at them, and... I'm willing to go out on a limb and say 90% of pseudo-archaeological theories have a thread of racism in them. Because, like, you're mentioning the movie, uh, I'm sorry, what is it, Moesha? The Disney movie? Moana? Moana. I I never watched it, I'm sorry. Um, But that's, I believe, looking at uh, Polynesian mythology? Yes, it's based in a lot of um, Samoan, um, but they do collect from sort of a wider array oh, yeah. of the Polynesian right. Islands. So yeah. you're yeah. looking... We're looking at a group of people who are actually fairly renowned for their sailing abilities. Um, I mean, navigating by the stars, they, they had some of the most complicated mm-hmm. star charts mm-hmm. still mm-hmm. to this day. Uh, and it's... I mm-hmm. won't say it's infallible, but it's remarkably accurate, uh, considering they use no yeah. technology other than, I think, like a telescope at night. Um, but it, uh, it's a phenomenal way mm-hmm. to navigate, and we take all of that away, 
by insinuating that somehow these people are not responsible for their own heritage. And and when you say, you know, six dudes on a raft floated across the ocean and then, I don't know, somehow, like, seeded the islands, mm-hmm. it, you're basically using... You're basically breaking that down to the culture-bearer myth or the culture-bearer theory where you have one advanced set of culture-bearers who are drifting or coming or, Mm -hmm. you know, intentionally interacting, and there either are no people or more likely, more usually, there are a group of people, but they are quote-unquote primitive, and the culture-bearer has Mm -hmm. come and then bestows upon these primitive people knowledge and culture and skills and and things and they're what you're doing at that point is you're removing all of that from the people who are real living people who live on these areas who have a a history and are native to this islands or the land or whatever you're taking all that away from them and you're being like no 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 you didn't do any of that somebody who we don't know but we assume is not you came here and did that for you that's yeah that's racist (laughs) yeah absolutely and so is the major problem then with um some aspects of pseudo-archaeology is that they have just enough grains of truth like uh, enough scientific sounding information that it makes it easier to um hide some of the more racist tendencies that um underlie the idea i think I think truth is too strong of a word, um, but definitely mm-hmm. science sounding. That's why I call it. it uh, that's why mm-hmm. I call it cult cult archaeology. You know, it's like a cargo cult. Uh, is what I base mm-hmm. it off of. I'm not the first person to use the term. I just it's true. really like it. Um, but the the whole concept of a cargo cult is, um, well, I mean, during the last World War, we had ba- uh, stations all over the, the place. A lot of them were on islands. Um, interacting with people who at the time had never been interacted with. Yeah, the John Furrow Furrow cult is really well known. Um, But basically, after the the bases all closed, all all the bases closed, and everybody went home, we just left everything there. But we had been paying the local people, and I mean, we, the Americans, had been paying the local people with cargo. So we gave them, like, candy and canned food and soda. And I mean, we were were paying them with the same things that we were... providing the troops with and they loved it and they wanted it back and they we had trained them to run the air bases it, it trained them how to like fly in the shit not like fly the planes but like guide the planes in and, and different aspects of it mm-hmm. but we never fully educated them on how an airport works and what an airplane is and so after the the troops left mm-hmm. they would go through the ritual of flagging in an airplane and they would and even today you can go and they they still kind of pantomime these things out they'll have people who dress up like airplanes and they they do a little dance and they land on the airstrip and they they have people who are the the flaggers and and they they dance and they do these things um and i think for the most part they're aware today that that what they're doing is is basically ritual and pantomime but at the time they thought if they did this the cargo would come back so that's what a cargo cult is, and that's why I'm saying that it's cargo or there's uh, cult archaeology because they're they're going through the process of 
creating a hypothesis, or at least they think they are, but they don't understand mm-hmm. bias. So their hypothesis are flawed. They're going through the process of research, but since they don't have a guiding hypothesis, their research is flawed. And then they go through the process of revealing mm-hmm. this research or their conclusions, but since they started with a flawed premises and they don't go through a peer review process, they don't know how to write a paper up, they don't under- they don't even understand that these things occur. Um, so again, it's, it's, it's pantomiming, but it's not complete. And so it, it comes to things like you start getting these things like well i don't know how it did how that happened therefore aliens and and that's where a lot of that comes from wayne may is amazing at this um he can mm-hmm. spin a story and use all the sciencey words and he can he can stretch a kernel kernel of truth out to make it sound like he's really got something and then when you sit down and you look at what he's actually physically said Mm-hmm. It's gibberish. Mm-hmm. And a lot of ancient, mm-hmm. a lot of the ancient aliens TV but he's shows. But dangerous like enough that it. Yeah, yeah it's very dangerous. Um, yeah, I think Steph wanted to hit on the dangers of it. And actually, this is this is a perfect stopping point. We'll get into the dangers with Stephanie when we come back from this break. This network is supported by our listeners. You can become a supporting member by going to arcpodnet.com slash members and signing up. As a supporting member, you have access to high-quality downloads of each show and a discount at our online store and access to show hosts on a members-only Slack team. For professional members, we'll have training shows and other special content offered throughout the year. Once again, go to arcpodnet.com slash members to support the network and get some great extras and swag in the process. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Welcome back. Uh, in the first segment, we were talking about what pseudo-archaeology is all about, um, how there's some underlying racism within pseudo-archaeology, uh, some of the dangers of, archaeo- of pseudo-archaeology, and we'll be getting into that even more in this segment. And Stephanie, Steph, you're going <laughs> to talk about uh, some of the warning signs and dangers of pseudo-archaeology. Yeah, there's kind of pseudo-archaeology, I want to say lucky, luckily it's easy to notice, but I think the problem is that it's only easy to notice when you know what you're looking for. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's kind of three three main things, I think, um, like, I guess a set of three core characteristics that pseudo-archaeology kind of revolves around. Um, And the first is that they kind of don't use the scientific method or they don't use all of it. Um, the next is they sort of just give answers that are too simple to big complex questions. Uh, mm-hmm. and then third is that they, they present pseudo-archaeologists or, or those proposing pseudo-archaeological theories present themselves as being the victims in a big archaeological debate. Like, oh, you know, archaeologists are always attacking me, always attacking me. Like, they're not listening to what <laughs> I have to say. Um, and so when you sort of think about those three, as you're watching things like ancient aliens or sort of mainstream television documentaries about archaeology, you can start to pick things apart. Mm-hmm. And 
I, I think one of the dangers is that sometimes documentaries are really well produced, like the Salutrian hypo- uh, hypothesis documentary that was just on CBC. They actually did a really good job with that, which is scary because when people don't know... They have such a budget. They, yeah, it yeah. was it was a really well produced documentary. By the end of it, I was like, "Holy cow, that was really well done!" Mm-hmm. But it was awful. You felt almost convinced. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, and that's what I was saying to my husband afterwards too. I was like, "If I didn't know anything about the Salutrian hypothesis, if I didn't know about the story behind it, absolutely, I'd be convinced by that documentary." Which is kind yeah. of the scary thing. It's the the cherry picking of evidence, which really tends to stand out. Um, But of course, that's something that is really only noticeable if you have background knowledge. Exactly. Exactly. And it's hard to tell because one of the other things, like you're saying, with incomplete um, scientific method Mm -hmm. is the way that they go about their research is trying going out with an idea and trying to prove that and looking for proof of whereas the scientific hypothesis or scientific method goes out and is looking for information to answer a question it doesn't have a predis or shouldn't i should say yeah have a predisposed idea of what is true and what is not true and doesn't make excuses for data that shows otherwise Um, exactly so that's where Depending on how a documentary, it's hard to tell because depending on how it's produced, it may not show or reveal that aspect of it. Um, Mm -hmm. I haven't seen that CBC um, documentary, obviously not being in Canada (laughs) myself, but um, I have heard about it and I read um, Sarah's article on it. Um, Yeah. That was, it's really unfortunate. It's yeah. the best way I can <laughs> to put it mildly. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, it's an extreme understatement, but uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. For the sake of our, our listeners, and um, maybe uh, Sarah, you can touch on this too, um, just as like a, a quick uh, quick blurb about what exactly did the documentary say and what was wrong about it? Well, I'm, I'm actually going to pass this off to Steph because she is our resident oh, sure. Canadian. Okay. <laughs> um, but I do have a couple comments I want to make about the the, uh, the broadcast uh, when she's done explaining it. Excellent. Just so yeah. um, I think a few folks might be scratching their heads like, what what is the Salutrian hypothesis? So the Salutrian hypothesis, um, it's actually been around since the 1930s, but it became popular with archaeologists Dennis Stanford and Bruce Bradley, uh, who argued that Salutrians, who were um, people that lived in France and Spain just over 20,000 years ago, I think something like 24,000 years ago. Anyway, they've argued that people from France and Spain traveled across the Atlantic Ocean via boat um, and kind of iceberg hopping to the east coast of North America about 20,000 years ago. But this entire argument is based on the similarities between stone tools that were found on the east coast of North America and Salutrian stone tools. And there's just no other evidence that supports it. Um, Salutrians, there's no evidence for watercraft at all from Salutrian sites. Their arguments about um, the cave art that they see in Salutrian sites can easily be explained away. Plus, there's no Salutrian cave art in North America, and Salutrians were kind of known for their incredible cave art. Um, hmm. And so, a few weeks ago, 
CBC aired a documentary, a Nature of Things documentary called Icebridge, which kind of lent a bit of credence to this theory without full out supporting it. They sort of were along the lines of, hey, there might be something to this. We should hear these guys out. But the thing is that this theory has been widely adopted by uh, white nationalists and white supremacists. And that aspect of it just wasn't touched at all in the documentary. Um, And it was also just very, very one-sided. So one-sided. Oh, absolutely. And Hmm. one of the things that I wrote about, like in my article about it, was the there was an interview um, before it aired with the documentary's director. And just her language use in this interview was... Just, oh, it was just so disappointing. Uh, it was really awful. It, it really is a very stunning interview. Because uh-huh. um, I did, I, you can listen to that. That is available yep. in the States. And she is incredibly dismissive oh, of yeah. all the complaints that are brought forward. Um, she is, like you said, the language she's yep. using, she's very supportive yep. of the idea of the solutrine hypothesis being correct, which there is no evidence that it is. <laughs> and the thing that bothered me the most was when she was asked about, uh, there are, there are native American groups who are mm-hmm. not happy with this solutrine hypothesis or this show being aired. And she was, she was very dismissive to the fact where she was like, well, we had this one group that was working with us. Therefore the rest of them don't have anything to complain about. And I'm just like, mm-hmm. Oh my God, one Indian is not all Indians. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's kind of what she was like. And I was, yeah. I was, I was very unimpressed with her in the interview. Yeah. So I just wanted to point out, not only is there a lack of, of evidence for it as far as really good supporting Mm -hmm. evidence. There's actually a fair amount of evidence uh, that counters the Solutrean hypothesis so far. I mean, some of it is Mm -hmm. is there's a huge time gap between the two points that supposedly look alike or are similar to each other. And if you actually look at the the European, like the the Iberian Peninsula Solutrians versus the um, proposed American Solutrian points, there's like less than a handful that from Iberia that look anything like the American version yeah. that are supposed to be, dis- you know, quote unquote descended. But they're actually, if you look at the the assemblages being like the collection of tools that go with it and the larger variety of the points, they don't look, they don't resemble each other. Um, and it's something to keep in mind that there are many cases to where you have People creating the same basic shape over, obviously, something like a 100,000 years or trying to go towards this same use as a point on the end of a spear. or, mm-hmm. um, And so you will have what some might call like a convergent, um, I don't want to use evolution, but like a convergent form from different parts of the world that look similar and will have a similar shape. And I think that's probably the most likely case is that there happens to be a similarity in two different parts of the world that, again, are thousands of years apart in time. Um, yeah. And 
just the environmental and um, like the climate data does not support the existence of an ice bridge yeah. at all. Um, the close, but would a non-archaeologist know this? That's yeah, that's my exactly. main concerns. That it's there wouldn't, show- and that's the the challenge, um, especially how it's presented by yeah institutions like the CBC that are considered by by many to be legitimate. It's like mm-hmm. if the you know PBS did a, a piece on that, that would be an outrage because it is one of the few outlets of fairly decent, like educational material output in the U S that I'm aware of right mm-hmm. now. Um, yeah, absolutely. And so how do you think this then damages our field and how we do our, our work? Do you see it as a threat to how our work is conducted or how our work is perceived? One of the most damning things about the CBC Ice Bridge episode is that uh, Sanford and Bradley are well-known and relatively well-respected archaeologists and authorities in their field. I mean, they are. They just happen to subscribe to the Salutrine hypothesis, which is unproven and unpopular. Um... And it's unpopular because there's no freaking evidence for it, regardless of what these guys want to say. But, you know, this goes back to that mm. appeal to authority. So that is a problem. These guys are authorities. Um, but the way the show portrayed all of that, it is a problem. I mean, th- this is what makes the CBC show so unique, uh, in my opinion, compared to Ancient Aliens, um... Uh, America Unearthed, <laughs> uh, Expedition Unknown, and some of the other wackadoo shows that are on air. <laughs> CBC has a, as far as I understand, is respected. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, yep. it's like she says, it's like if PBS were to do it. Yep. Um, and these two gentlemen, I mean, they're doctors, they're professors. One of them works for the Smithsonian, the other one taught for like 30 years. Yeah, absolutely. At, 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 Acceler uh, University, I think. I, I know I butchered that, but I mean, they're they're known for mm-hmm. their knowledge. I, I, so, so, are there a few examples yeah, of this though? Of people like the, uh, with having professionals like, like that high come expertise, out and yeah. coming out and supporting a unaccepted theory so publicly. Uh, yeah, this is unique, uh, which I think is yeah. why this has kind of ticked off archaeological Twitter. Uh, more than anything else really ever does. Because, like, Suklos, he's a funny guy. He's got poofy hair. I don't even think he takes himself seriously. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's fun to uh, talk yeah. to. I, I've been told he's very personable. Um, I, don't, I don't know if he believes in the alien theory, and it doesn't matter if he does or doesn't. The guy started off his career as a wrestling promoter. I mean, he's, he's a showman. Uh, yeah. He's got no credentials. You know? Um... <laughs> so it's easier for a non-archaeologist to easily see that, like, yeah, something's off I mean, here. But for something yeah. like this documentary, it seems like it'd be very difficult to plus, be like, well, I don't know about this theory. Plus the issue, too, is that a lot of um, pseudo-archaeology does come from 
non-archaeologists or maybe, I mean, maybe well-known researchers or, or well-studied researchers, but in different fields, a lot of pseudo-art comes from them just um, misunderstanding or misinterpreting or sometimes intentionally misinterpreting the evidence. And what mm-hmm. set this one apart also is that Stanford and Bradley sort of have, they they know that it's not being taken seriously. Like they know that it's out there. It's pseudo archeological theory. And they're like, we don't care. We still think this, Uh, which also makes it a little bit unique. Well, and that kind of, so I'm going to, I'm going to step on a toe. I'm sure here. um, (laughs) So this kind of brings me around to something I read in your article, Sarah, and I apologize, but I have to pick a bone with it. So, (laughs) The, the, so the Solutrean hypothesis. Yes. (laughs) So the Solutrean hypothesis is something that was pseudo, um, taken, like, it was a serious thing to, when it was proposed and when these guys were first looking at it. It has since been, like, subsumed by, you know, these other political, um, and social movements mm-hmm. um, in a different direction and they seem to be okay with that which it, that is unique um, mm-hmm. however the idea of a professional that is trying to take a scientific idea and hangs his career hat on the outcome of the answer to that question that he first got and is not flexible to um, changing that idea with changing evidence then they lose the status at least in my mind of as a scientist um, when you get into, so archaeology, like all sciences, it's like a moving target. Stuff's changing, just, I mean, not super rapidly, but stuff does change over time. Um, the Clovis, um, idea is something that has changed as well. Um, and that was the piece that I wanted to pick with you, Sarah, was the, the mention that, um, the Clovis, uh, people coming through the land bridge is the current standing, um, which, to my knowledge, I've worked with a lot of people that have considered that to be um, no longer the case. And I know that that has been more widely accepted for more of the... Because there's a, a huge number of sites now that are pre-Clovis. So you have a group of people, and I'm not saying you're part of this necessarily, but there's um, a short group of people who continue to hang their hat on a Clovis first hypothesis, notwithstanding a, at this point, truck ton of evidence that is counter to that. Including, you know, the environmental evidence that they've been able to gather just in the last five years or so. Um, so that's some of I, my. <laughs> I, I understand. I understand your objections. I do. I do. Yeah. Uh, no, I, seriously, I understand your objections to it. However, uh, this falls back on the whole. This is a professional argument. Yeah, exactly. Um, mm-hmm. That we we as a field are having. Um, my blog. Evidence versus no evidence, <laughs> and and that's fine. I, my blog reaches out to a yeah. less professional audience. Um, I am not versed enough in the nuances of the pre-Clovis, and I do make mention that there are pre-Clovis mm-hmm. theories out there. Uh, the, but the the Bering Straits, uh, 
the Bering Strait uh, hypothesis mm-hmm. is still the most solid one that we have. I mean, yeah, we have evidence of other people, but I, to my knowledge, we're not clear on how they got here exactly yet. Yeah. Um, so they're obviously here, we just don't know how they got yeah. here yet. And uh, where with the Bering Land Bridge, we can actually track that. And we don't need to worry about those as much in terms of... Yeah, I mean, there's no exactly. there's no debate that they're here, but... We don't need to quite as much in terms of a pseudo-archaeological topic. Right, but the Salutrian, the, the yeah. Salutrian mm-hmm. hypothesis uh, mm-hmm. suggests ah. that there were people here even before the pre-Clovis. Like, the Salutrian would predate pre-Clovis. Um... So that's that's the major issue with the Salutrian hypothesis. Yeah. It's it's yeah. I mean, yeah. It's just by a, by way too much. By about ten thousand years, just, like uh, <laughs> Steph has pointed out, there's massive yeah. holes in it that you can drive like yeah. a fleet of trucks through. And the reason that's why another I issue with the, the Bering exactly. Strait one is exactly well, I mean, the reason I stuck with the Bering so Strait bridge is uh, the Bering Strait theory is because it's. It's the one that's easiest to understand. It's still the most solid. Uh, once we know more about pre-Clovis, I'm more than happy to change it. Hey. <laughs> we'll have to have a conversation during the essay. Oh, I mean, bring it, man. I, like I said, I'm not versed enough. Oh, I know, and that's fine. I just thought I'd bring it up and point it out, um, and oh. not to, you know, shoot anything down. But I was like, oh, oh, <laughs> that's fine. It's fine I'll have to bring that up. Sorry. <laughs> All right, and so um, to stay on topic, uh, so obviously there are a lot of negative issues when it comes to pseudo-archaeology, and just in the last couple minutes of this segment, um, I thought it'd be interesting to see, are there any positive sides to pseudo-archaeology in terms of it gets people interested in archaeology in general, or is it, for the most part, Mm. a relatively dangerous field? You know, it definitely gets people interested in archaeology, but I think in the wrong way. By by giving them this false information or um, mm. not providing the critiques, like that was another issue with this CBC documentary, is that, sure, they interviewed some people for their critiques who said, yeah, yeah, we think this is silly, but then they cut out all the critiques, leaving it very one-sided. So... You're, you're drawing people into archaeology, but mm. giving them a very one-sided, um, widely discredited idea isn't, I don't think it's the best way to do it. No. And I think in some respects, it also draws in, yeah. I hate to say the wrong kind of people, but for the, yeah. the drawing in people for the wrong reasons. Like there, it's people, not people who are no. interested in the history and the, the legi- legitimate history of, um, humanity, but people who want to have an excuse um, mm-hmm. for uh, other beliefs that they have, they want to be able to point to something more mystical and higher than them for different reasons, um, mm-hmm. something outside of the human, um, be it God, aliens, um, you know, yep. you can go on. Um, but it's, it's one of those things, it's not trying to give people a reason to believe in in humanity and in the the ability of different peoples in different parts of the world and their accomplishments it gives them mm-hmm. reason to look outside of that and to not look at the accomplishments that we have been able to yeah. um, all do if archaeology shows us anything is that people had the ability to do some truly Absolutely. amazing things 
Yeah, I don't think there's any point, honestly, that it's a good mm-hmm. thing. Um, unless you're mm-hmm. lying in your pockets mm-hmm. with a television show. I mean, it, it's probably good for profit margins and it's good for viewership, but it's it's not good for us as a field and it's yeah. not good for our understanding of humanity. And I think mm-hmm. we're... A lot, I mean, having things like this out there doesn't do a service to anyone, honestly. It, it takes away... It takes away from the cultures that did achieve these things, and it confuses people, and it fills their heads with information that's contradictory to yep. what we understand as reality. So That's a really good point, and that's a, an excellent uh, point to end this segment on. Uh, we'll be taking a quick break, and when we come back, we will discuss more of the issues surrounding pseudo-archaeology and our final thoughts. The Archaeology Podcast Network has partnered with Tee Public to bring you some awesome gear that looks good, promotes archaeology, and puts a few pennies in our pockets so you can get free podcasts. Check out our designs at arcpodnet.com slash shop. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop. Welcome back. In our last segment, we were talking about some of the dangers of pseudo-archaeology, the issues surrounding the Salutrian hypothesis. On this segment, we're going to continue talking a little bit about um, how to identify pseudo-archaeology, some of the other dangers, and also some more examples of the type of pseudo-archaeology that's out there. Um, During the break, uh, Sarah and Steph were having an interesting conversation about the different kinds of um, things that Steph has seen in her research on looking at pseudo-archaeology and didn't know if either of you would like to jump in on that. Yeah, actually, I just kind of wanted to know what kind of things Steph has encountered while she's researching. Like, how Mm -hmm. do you, other than the premises, this is completely flawed, Mm -hmm. (laughs) how do you know when you're looking at pseudo-archaeology? Like, what what are the things when you're reading an article that you're like, yeah, that's a red flag, that's a red flag? Uh... You know, to be honest, I call it the haters will say it's not real language. Um, <laughs> because, yeah. I, like, I come across all these theories and whatnot, and the first thing I always notice is when people get really defensive of them. Mm. And, like, the absolute best website example so far that I've come across is actually for the Star Child Project. Their entire website is just classic haters will say it's not real um and it's got some amazing just if you go through the list of of what you're the the checklist of what you're looking for in pseudoscience or pseudoarchaeology and you compare it to this website it just hits every single one um and it's just like what so like on their their front page um down near Mm -hmm. the bottom they've got a link that takes you to their debunking page um, and like the title, it says <laughs> deformity and hoax, um, blah, blah, blah. And one of the things they say is, while some sites and skeptics claim to have debunked the star child skull, they significantly fail to address the facts about the skull. We've compiled a list of the most common debunking claims and explained why they're not accurate. Read it here. <laughs> oh, and wow. I'm just like, yeah, it's amazing. And then you go onto that page, their debunking page, and I'm just going to it now. Um, Every single one, they're like, oh, well, this isn't true because our report says it's not true. This isn't true because our report says it's not true. Every single oh, one. Because we think so. Exactly. It's a great, great argument. Exactly. <laughs> and their their whole website is just like, it's just a perfect example of things to look for. I, I'm looking at it right now. And it's uh-huh. like one of their things are deformity and hoax. Yep. Like, yep. The most 
the easiest explanation obviously has to be wrong. Well, and even just with a, a rudimentary understanding of in training in bioarchaeology, like looking mm-hmm. at yeah. the picture the on the front, on the front page, front page. Mm-hmm. it seems like it's obviously a deformity. Like there's no, mm-hmm. it's just. So is this a, um, <laughs> a skull that has been, um, the, the forehead has been extended with like boards and whatnot when the individual was a child. And, but then because it's elongated saying it must be an alien. The sort idea? of. Uh, she, the star child's a fetal skull, isn't it? Uh, I think they, well, the report, uh, the guy who looked at it says that, the the child was about five years old, um, based on dentition. There isn't much to be said for dentition on this. Um, yeah. But just the the frame and magnum is like fused with like the it's just huge. It's yeah. it's fu- like it's with another large like it's gaping it's twice the size as it should be like it's yeah this is not like mm. looking at it i am it's just like this is not well it's not developed properly it's just yeah it well steph hits on a really important uh trait though of uh, pseudo-archaeology science it's the where she's saying she's on their debunking page and they're saying well these skeptics are wrong because our report says so, and it just kind of repeats yep. itself. Having only one source or having very limited sources, like two, yeah. three, yeah, mm-hmm. that's very common in pseudo-archaeology. Uh, along with that particular, I like to call them red flags, uh, you will also find sources that repeat sources that repeat other sources yeah. so like you you've created a uh, echo chamber basically yep. mm-hmm. of somewhere you can tell there's a parent document and every single one of these other sources is sometimes verbatim repeating that parent document but yet it creates multiple sources yeah. So you've got mm-hmm. five sources now but they're all literally saying the same thing because they're all repeating one parent source um mm-hmm. so it's not actually scholarly by any stretch but just because there are exactly. sources doesn't necessarily mean yeah um, yeah and i believe if i'm if i'm thinking of this correctly i believe that is what and i'm not necessarily equating these two together i don't want to get yelled at <laughs> but um holocaust deniers have done similar things in terms of their research where they'll just build off of one other person and then create all these sources that then say well obviously this didn't happen because of this source and this source and this source and when you go back to the root it's like that doesn't make any sense yeah. mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. dumb and there's no real history to it but by looking, if you're just glancing at a works cited page or exactly. a bibliography, you're like, oh my, yeah, there's all these. look at all these sources, they must be true. And you get into those dangers of, well, if it looks scientific, it must be. It's like, yep. nope, nope, exactly. nope, nope. It goes um, right back to that cult science because it's like, well, they understand that they've got to have a reference page and they understand that they need to have more than one reference. So now they've got five and it's like, well, none of those fives are scholarly or reliable. Therefore, they are all crap. I mean, I hate mm-hmm. to be blunt, yeah. but that's well, that's what yeah. it is. And I know it irritates people when oh, I say that. It's true. I know. I mean, it irritates people a lot. And, and I, I feel bad because they're irritated because it's still not going to change anything. They're still crap sources. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and that kind of stuff. And that's the other thing to look for is the crap sources. 
if you're if you're serious about getting to the bottom of some of these these mysterious alt archaeology alt history things you've got to do the you've got to dig into their sources and find out where they're coming from like are they just mm-hmm. quoting random blog out on the internet who said the thing that they needed them to say so they could say it in their blog that's not a credible source so it doesn't qualify you know um that kind mm-hmm. of stuff yeah. when you look at and and granted we're trying to do this and and that's my other soapbox to get on here in a minute but when you look at something that a professional has produced you will see lots mm-hmm. of resources and they will have mm-hmm. they'll have a pedigree basically you mm-hmm. can trace them back mm-hmm. to a journal you can trace the researchers back to a known uh, facility, a college a, a research group um, a CRM firm mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. Yeah. my high horse at my blog.com <laughs> yeah. So that kind of stuff. So I was just going to reiterate what you're saying. And, you know, usually you'll have a CV. I mean, it's if you're trying to see if a, a researcher is legitimate, you need to find a CV because um, they will have on that everything that they've done. And that's some of their pedigree. Um, and then with looking at the sources, and this is something that... Um, I've been because most people don't even know how to look at sources or how to mm-hmm. to evaluate sure. uh, things that That's might true. that might look fishy and it's like if you have any suspicion and mm-hmm. you know we we mentioned some of those things like you know having uh, an immediate rebuttal and like as you said what is it haters haters gonna hate haters, haters gonna, gonna say it's fake <laughs> haters gonna say it's wrong or it's fake yeah. Um, like anything like that, um, but you're still not sure, take a look and follow the links to those references. Yeah. And I've seen some situations to where places will cite a legitimate article that does not in any way claim what they're trying to say. Um, yeah, yeah, that's another one. And yeah. that I think is the most dangerous because people will go and look at it and be like, okay, that looks legit. It's through JSTOR. And then you're like, wait, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's like, true. The the abstract, you know, once you read that, you're like, that doesn't have anything to do with what they were just saying. Like, it's true. Um, that's that's a, a a problem. And I think if people are really interested and really want to know um, and separate those out, uh, getting kind of, and it's. The part of the challenge, I think, in some of this is if you don't have access to read yeah. the actual paper, you're only getting the abstract unless it happens to be something that is um, through uh, open source, which in archaeology mm-hmm. is not common. Um, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's part of a, a, pr- Again, a bigger more problem. Again, more of my horse of, to get on. And some of this feeds into... <laughs> There's, there isn't like mm-hmm. legitimate archaeology is not as accessible as pseudo archaeology. Yeah, it's true. Yes, and exactly. that can be a complaint about our field as well. That perhaps one of the ways of confronting it is making um, available more information mm-hmm. of a scientific nature, but in, that are in layman's terms. Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. Like, I think like the the time team. Uh, documentaries are great and yep. they can be a great way to confront other uh, 
other documentaries like this Salutrian hypothesis that you guys are talking about. Maybe we need to make our own. Didn't just put it on YouTube and be like, rebuttal to the Salutrian <laughs> hypothesis of the CBC. You know? yeah, it's true. But uh, what do you think are some other ways? So we have, there are obviously some ways of identifying. I was going to say the late and sainted Carl Sagan uh, in his books, uh, Demon Haunted World said, if we continue to be the sage I'm paraphrasing basically he was saying if we continue as scientists and professionals to make our fields inaccessible Mm -hmm. people are going to turn to the charlatans because they're accessible Mm -hmm. and they're fun yep yeah absolutely (laughs) definitely it's true and so a way to confront some of these issues is Mm -hmm. give back uh, with more information and exhibits and podcasts and websites um are there any other suggestions you guys can think of that would be a good way to confront the issues surrounding pseudo-archaeology? And do you think we can change people's minds? Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, so there's two there's two groups of people I like to talk about when it comes to the whole concept of changing people's minds. Mm-hmm. You have people who are curious, mm-hmm. and so they're looking stuff up. And those are the people that we need to reach. Those are the people we need to make our stuff available to. And that's why we need to get ourselves, all of us, all archaeologists, professionals, academics, CRM people, we need to become involved with popular social media. Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, podcasting, blogs, that kind of stuff. We need to be heard because those people will find our stuff they will read it and most of them are I mean I give people the benefit of the doubt most people are intelligent enough that if they are presented with facts over opinions they will go with the facts the other group of people that you have are what I call true believers and they are the people that hands down you can say nothing do nothing present them with nothing that will change their minds Mm -hmm. And they will argue with you until the day they die that they are correct and you are wrong. Mm -hmm. You can't reach those people. And unfortunately, those are the majority of the people you're going to get into arguments with on the internet. Um, But so you've got to learn to to pick those people out. They're Mm -hmm. usually pretty easy to tell who they are, though. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Engaging with those people in the comments section or wherever... There's an argument there that there's merit. I personally don't like to do it because it's a, I, I, it's a waste of my time. Yeah. But mm-hmm. the argument for it, if you're somebody that likes to argue on the internet, is those same people who are curious and who are tr- who are trying to look up facts and figures. They're going to see the exchange, and hopefully they will be able to suss out which one of you is the authority and which one of you is the crackpot. Hopefully. Or they're going to go, you're both assholes, and they will just completely leave the conversation altogether. (laughs) I think that's counterproductive if that's what's happening. Yeah. 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 But you can't reach the true believers, but you can reach the curious people. And that's why the field of archaeology needs to open itself up more. We are a study of people for people, not a study of people for ourselves. And hoarding our knowledge is useless. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that's a that's yeah. an excellent yeah, point. Yeah, and, and the, these are my final thoughts. So, <laughs> yeah, so if we, if we as a field don't make ourselves more accessible, I saw Emily's note, then uh, we're not we're not doing anybody any favors and what we are doing is we're creating mysticism around our field, which yeah. 
makes it easier for things like ancient aliens and unearthed America and diggers and all these other crap shows that are on public television, popular public television to become so popular. And that's why you get shows Mm -hmm. like CBC uh, doing stuff like Icebridge because they want eyeballs too. And if the the crackpot theories are getting you eyeballs, well, what do you think they're going to air? Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. That's true. And the thing to keep in mind is that there has been a long history of this type of negative use of history mm-hmm. and archaeology. I mean, there are so many examples of the mound builders and um, along the East where it was assumed that, you know, the Egyptians or someone else must have come to build the, the mounds where other historians were like, no, I, we think it's the Native American people because... They have the same artifacts and they live here. And, um, <laughs> yeah. And, it, and now we look back and go, well, that's ridiculous. How could have anybody thought that, you know, Egyptians came to the United States? Well, similar thing may happen years from now with a lot of these things. So it's like, yeah. Hindsight, people. But yeah. Well, um, so other final thoughts. <laughs> Emily, I like the reference to the historic with the Cahokia um, pieces. Uh, you could also really. If you wanted to, you know, anger some people, bring up uh, Mormonism as an example. Oh, jeez. Um, and how all that came about. But um, with regard to Cahokia, you have, like, today, there's still towns that are named after Egyptian cities along the Mississippi, which I think is both entertaining and unfortunate. Um, mm-hmm. Because it's it's a legacy of that type of um, racism along along that region, um, and that's I was that was my my comment on that. I don't have my final thoughts <laughs> compiled in my head yet. I apologize. Sorry. <laughs> final thoughts on pseudo archaeology. Uh, yeah, I was going to say I agree with what Sarah was talking about that we need to be archaeologists need to be more willing to engage with the public. Um, and we need to also understand that our level of knowledge about archaeology is much, much different from others who aren't in archaeology. And we need to find ways that we can accurately describe what we've been studying, what we've been researching in ways that other people can understand, which is why I think blogs actually are a great example of that, because so many blogs are written um with sort of non-archaeologists in mind. They're sort of more, I don't want to say laymen, but they're kind of more easily understandable, um, which is yeah. also brings me on to the idea of social media. And I think social media is a fantastic tool for archaeologists, whether t- Twitter in particular, because it's always updating. It's like, you know, somebody writes something and five seconds later, it's just there. Um And I think it's really awesome to see archaeologists engaging with Twitter where a lot of um, theories are sort of breaking. I should maybe that's not quite the word. I I don't know if you guys have seen anything. It just came out the other day about an article talking about how the ancient Greeks might have actually reached North America and reached Canada. Hmm. So these guys, I'm not sure where, I can't remember where these researchers are. They've published an article talking about um, some of Plutarch's writing. Is that his name? Yeah, Plutarch's writing. Um, And Mm -hmm. how he, the way he describes astronomy, it seems possible that ancient Greeks might have sailed to Canada. 
And they never, huh. in this article, they never said that, yes, they made it to Canada. They landed in Canada. They just said, hey, based on what we studied in this astronomy, it's possible. But so I read this article and maybe an hour later on Twitter, I saw people saying, hey, the ancient Greeks made it to Canada. They landed in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's like, that's that's not exactly what the article said, but it's kind of easy to see how it could be misread. And I yeah. think if archaeologists are uh, involving themselves, engaging with social media, it gives us a chance to see these theories um, rising before they really take hold. And it mm-hmm. gives us a chance to speak out about them or against them um, before they do too much damage. That's... Yeah. An Hopefully. excellent point and and excellent way to end this episode. Thank you so much, ladies, for joining in this recording this evening. It was absolutely delightful to have you. Oh, thank you for having us. It was good to be here. Thank and you. Steph, I hope you can... Oh, happy to have had you. And Steph, thank you so much for joining us. I hope we didn't scare you away. <laughs> no. Hope you'll be on other episodes with us. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much. I had a lot of fun. Oh, I'm so glad. Well, listeners, check out our blog on WordPress and check out our Twitter feed. It's at Women Archies is the Twitter. And the blog is Women in Archaeology at, at WordPress.com. Thank you very much, Sarah. If you have any comments or questions, please feel free to email us at womeninarchaeology at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Again, thanks for listening. Bye! Anybody else want to say bye? Bye! Bye. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to the Women in Archaeology podcast. Links to the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes. You can contact us at womeninarchaeology at gmail.com or at womenarchies on Twitter. Please like, share, and subscribe to the show. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Support the show in the APN at www.archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle, in Reno, Nevada, at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.